From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Voting rights activist Stacey Abrams is coming to Colorado, which has expanded ballot access rather than restricted it, like other states. To the minds of those who are passing these laws, inconvenient people voted, mainly people of color and young people. I greatly prefer the direction that Colorado is moving in, which is to expand access to the right to vote to qualified citizens, making certain that our democracy is enlivened as opposed to eroded. Abrams joins us. Then the intricacies of detecting stolen art and antiquities. There's more evidence on the back of a painting frame than what one can find on antiquities. These kinds of items can slip past customs and it makes them a target for trafficking. And in Colorado Wonders, how the heck does our state have pelicans? I cannot donate as much now as I could when I was working, but I still feel it's important to give what I can. I gave because I've lived in Colorado for five years now, and I've listened to CPR almost every single day, and I felt like it was time for me to finally step up and support all the wonderful programming. I value and trust this public resource. I have two children, and I want it to continue well into their future. Whatever your reason for giving, thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Stacey Abrams, the voting rights activist and former Georgia gubernatorial candidate, comes to Colorado this week. She'd like to see the election system here replicated in her own state and nationwide. We spoke late last week ahead of her event at Denver's Paramount Theater. Stacey Abrams, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Denver, as you know, inherited last July's baseball all-star game after your home state, Georgia, passed a slate of voting restrictions. Now, you opposed that legislation, but you also opposed moving the game from Atlanta. I'm curious to learn why you were against that sort of boycott. Well, boycotts have both an emotional and, over time, a political and economic effect. The challenge often with boycotts is how long it takes and who gets hurt in the process. My belief is and was that the leaders who made the choice to restrict access to the right to vote, to engage in more aggressive voter suppression, and to thumb their noses at the reality of how uh, these laws were going to affect their voters, they would not be persuaded by an economic loss, uh, because for them, this is about the pursuit of power. And when power is being balanced against the needs of others, uh, a boycott sometimes is just ineffective. It could work, and I think we have seen in small ways changes that have been made in other places. But for my purposes, I'd rather keep the communities that are here and engage them and have them keep fighting than to use an economic boycott that would likely result in their exodus and thus a tightening of the grip of power of those who would deny us democracy. So do you think then that moving the game wound up not achieving its ends? I think for Major League Baseball, the goal was to signal its dissatisfaction with any leadership that would say that attacking communities of color, stripping them of their rights to vote in very discernible ways, that was not acceptable. So I understood why Major League Baseball did it. I didn't encourage it. 
but I appreciated their willingness to stand up and say, we think that what you are doing is wrong and we will have the power of our convictions and go to a state that has better laws and is doing a better job of preserving democracy. And that is a truth when it comes to comparing Georgia and Colorado. Well, let me have you unpack that for us. What do you see in Colorado that you'd like replicated elsewhere specifically? First and foremost, Colorado's very thoughtful and universal access to being able to vote by mail. Uh, That is not something we enjoy in Georgia. And in fact, Georgia has retrenched on what had been a fairly useful system. You also have 15 days of in-person early voting. Georgia has 17 days, but 15 days of early voting with the ability to universally vote by mail with the ballot sent to you automatically without having to jump through hoops or put your identities at risk. You allow for comfort teams to give food and water to those standing in lines, lines you do not have because people have the ability to either vote early in person on election day or to vote by mail. You also, in the state of Colorado, have been moving forward in trying to find additional innovations. You allow for drop boxes, but you also allow for mobile voting. And you are encouraging more and more people to access the right to vote. Sadly, in Georgia, we have seen a retrenchment, as I said earlier, on the right to vote because to the minds of those who are passing these laws, inconvenient people voted, mainly people of color and young people. And I greatly prefer the direction that Colorado is moving in, which is to expand access to the right to vote to qualified citizens, making certain that our democracy is enlivened and strengthened as opposed to eroded. Just to put a finer point on what has occurred in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp signed into law numerous voting restrictions, including limiting the number of ballot drop boxes in Fulton, Cobb, DeKalb, and Gwinnett counties, which include and surround Atlanta, and which contain more than a third of the state's Black population. Texas and Florida have passed restrictions. In total, 18 states, most of them under Republican control, have passed a combined 30 such bills, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. And Stacey Abrams, you have made specific reference to people of color. It makes me think of a conversation I had a while back with the author of a book called One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Um, The author is Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University. And I'll never forget something she told me, which is that history shows that racist voting laws are almost always wrapped in the message of protecting the vote and integrity of the system. Do you see that repeating then here? Absolutely. What they mean, and it's sort of completing the sentences, and I I can never say something better than the inimitable Dr. Carol Anderson, but it's protecting the vote from the undesirable, and it's defending the integrity of the vote for the necessary few. Unfortunately, in Georgia, that historically has meant distancing the right to vote from communities of color, beginning with African-Americans, but because we have burgeoning communities of Latino and AAPI voters, as well as Native American voters, we have seen voter suppression visited upon all of these communities and become increasingly worrisome and worse. President Trump continues to fundraise on the idea that the election system is vulnerable and unfair, I'll read through just a few email subject lines that he has sent recently. We cannot trust mail-in ballots. We must protect election integrity. What really happened in Georgia in 2020, uh, to name your state? 
The election was, in fact, secure, and court after court after court dismissed claims to the contrary. But this belief about the outcome of the election and its security, in a way, Stacey Abrams has become identity for people, as if what they believe about the election is a test of their of who they are, of the party that they are a member of, maybe, or how they see themselves. Is there any way to extricate those things? I I believe there is. And sadly, the extrication tends to happen at the tail end of demise, which is that as long as these laws are targeting those to whom you have no allegiance or affiliation, as long as the targets are others, then this identity, this proxy that has become voter integrity or whatever term of art they choose to use at the time, as long as you are not the target, then you are more than willing to frame your identity around it. But the challenge with authoritarianism, which is the path that we're on, is that eventually the targets turn to someone else. When they have succeeded in quelling those they have most fundamentally disliked, they then turn to the next group. And in Georgia, we experienced that, where we had a broken system and have a broken system that may have intentionally targeted communities of color and has been assiduous in its denigration of access. But it also, in the primary in 2020, revealed itself to be broken for everyone. And that's when you suddenly saw Republicans and Democrats decrying the execution of the elections. This is going to maximize itself on on such a national scale if we do not do something about it. And so, yes, there are those who will eventually find themselves admitting the error of their ways, but it will be at the end of our democracy and, and I think, too late. So it it sounds to me like your challenge, and I I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you you tell me your challenge, but that your challenge may be to connect this issue to everyone those who may not feel sidelined by whatever laws are being passed. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons the work I do is not intentionally for a certain party. I, I am I am unambiguously a Democrat. That is my political identity. But my first identity is as an American citizen. And to the extent that we can set aside partisanship in the process, we can get to it in the selection. But the process of voting should be nonpartisan, and it should be a patriotic belief that every eligible American citizen should have unimpeded access to the right to vote. That should be a truism. And for some, it was until they saw who was showing up to use the right. But I believe that if we continue to hit the drumbeat, that while our democracy is resilient, it is not impervious to harm we will eventually get people to realize that protecting the right to vote for others means protecting it for yourself. May I ask one more question before we let you go? Certainly. Uh, This is a question uh, having you wear your Democratic hat, your large D Democratic hat. We saw from the recent recall election in California that Democrats in many ways are still running against President Trump. Do you think that's the right strategy for your party? I think it's less about... Trump as a person and more about the symptomatic behaviors that have now infected Republican belief systems. I do not mind arguing value systems and processes with people who do not share my political belief. But what is deeply problematic 
is when those arguments lead to people's lives being put in jeopardy. And so what Governor Newsom had to advocate against and what we are watching Terry McAuliffe demand in this election is that we recognize that while a specific person did not get reelected, his value system and his behaviors have infected the party in some ways. And it is incumbent upon all of us, especially Democrats running for office or casting ballots, to recognize that what began with a person has now become a culture. And that culture is something we have to very much you know, illuminate and argue against if we are to preserve not only access to our democracy, but preserve the progress that we need to make as a nation. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Voting rights activist and Democratic organizer Stacey Abrams. That conversation was recorded late last week ahead of her appearance Wednesday evening at Denver's Paramount Theater. The Denver Art Museum is working to return four items from its collection to Cambodia. These objects, whose repatriation was already underway, were also spotlighted by the recent Pandora Papers investigation. These papers suggest some 40 relics tied to an indicted art dealer are in 10 museums around the world, including Denver's. Returning art to its original and rightful owners is a huge discussion these days in the larger context of colonialism and conquest. And it's something associate history professor at the University of Denver, Elizabeth Campbell, has dedicated a career to. She directs DU's Center for Art Collection Ethics. Professor, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So the Pandora Papers is an investigation by the Washington Post and other outlets involving millions of documents connected to an offshore financial system. And it found what the Post calls two secret offshore trusts that an indicted art dealer, Douglas Latchford, used to hold money and ancient relics, including some believed to be looted. In this case, we're talking about Cambodian antiquities. Now, you're not directly connected to this, but how often do you hear about this kind of case in the art world? This kind of case is actually more common than you might think. You might remember that this same consortium of journalists, so it's the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, also revealed the Panama Papers a few years ago. And so this was another study of tax havens. And that disclosure also showed that the wealthy and powerful around the world were using art to shield assets. And they hide these works of art in storage facilities, in locations that have these kinds of tax havens, in Freeports, there's a large uh, Freeport in Geneva mm. that uh, also is known to be uh, a place where these individuals store works of art. So we see it come out in the news headlines occasionally, but sadly it is a persistent problem that is nothing new. Now, using art and antiquities to uh, mass value indicates that there is a market for these items. There is some place you could sell them, presumably, even though their provenance is questionable, right? Yes, that's correct. And with antiquities, this is a big problem because it's it's often difficult to track down the provenance. If you think about the difference between an antiquity, so say there's a religious relic hmm. uh, that may be 
you know, a thousand years old and is not going to have the kind of markings that you would see on, for example, a 19th century painting that might have dealer stamps or custom stamps. Uh, there's more evidence on the back of a painting frame than what one can find on antiquities. So this makes it very difficult and um, time consuming, laborious to, to do this kind of research. These kinds of items can slip past customs officials and so there is a market for them and it, it makes them really a, a, a target for trafficking. For its part, the Denver Art Museum tells us that it contacted the Cambodian government in 2019 about the items in question. So the Washington Post report and this consortium, as you say, I suppose sheds further light on the issue. Uh, the dam confirms it has six objects that were gifted by or purchased from Douglas Latchford, four from Cambodia, the other two from Thailand. It deaccessioned all four Cambodian works last month, and uh, the museum tells us that they're working with that government to return the pieces. I know you've collaborated with the Denver Art Museum on ethics and art in the past. Can you shed light on the long road of repatriation? I mean, if this began in 2019, it shows just how slowly the gears can turn. Well, and actually, that doesn't sound like a very long time to me. And I'm not a staff member of the, the Denver Art Museum. But if you look at this kind of art restitution or repatriation case, it can take uh, several years uh, to go through this kind of investigative work. As I mentioned, it's a very slow and laborious process. And part of the problem when these works end up at museums, provenance research or ownership research, tracing an object's history, is often an area that museums have not invested in enough. Mm. Uh, and so, that means that they tend to be short-staffed. And if you think about an encyclopedic museum, so some of the big museums that are involved with this case, the British Museum, Metropolitan Museum of Art, we call these encyclopedic museums, they need to be doing provenance research on a wide range of items, some that may have been looted by the Nazis, African items, Native American items, and antiquities. Those are really the main areas. And in each of those categories, each object can be a very time-consuming case. So in this instance, the, the Denver Art Museum is doing the right thing by carrying out that research, by proactively connecting with the Cambodian government. You might remember they did repatriate a statue to Cambodia in 2016. Oh, yeah. That is the right thing to do right now. But it also requires investments. And so you're saying that museums in this regard are understaffed. Is it also true that there is a dearth of people who can do this kind of work? I mean, I, I wonder how easy it is to consult with someone who does this. Right, that's true. And that's actually um, part of our mission I'm, as I'm the director of the Center for Art Collection Ethics at right. the University of Denver. And part of our educational mission is to train uh, graduate students and emerging professionals to carry out this kind of provenance research. It's an area that has not yet been professionalized. And so it's often contract work, short-term uh, employment, and we're trying to play a role in, in changing that. But you're, you're right. Um, there is right now, um, I think there, there's, a there's a population that is willing and eager to do this work, but there are often not fully funded positions at museums. It's very rare for a, for a museum to have a full-time 
provenance research position. Uh, and so it's an area where museums need to be making this investment. And it's, it's an excellent opportunity for those who want to support museums to provide that support for provenance research at mm. the museums um, that they that they love. I mean, that's fascinating. It's an action item that you as a museum member or uh, higher up the economic chain, a philanthropist could demand. Now, if and this is going to show my naivete, but let's say the Denver Art Museum paid, I don't know, $250,000 or something for a relic. Then it turns out that that relic ought to be ethically repatriated. Does insurance cover that or do they just lose that investment? Most institutions do have insurance for that, that okay. can cover that kind of loss. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Uh, they yes. Now you've been doing as you say this kind of training for gosh, students, museum professionals, people who work at auction houses. I mean, I suppose you're really trying to train the front line, the the people who would see this stuff. Yes. Our mission is to change the culture in museums, auction houses, all of those involved in the art world, so that this rising generation of curators who will eventually then go on to be museum directors, so that they have ethics front and center in their minds, and that they prioritize provenance research. And for those who are interested in carrying out that research, actually giving them the skills to do it. And even you know, we'll have students who come through our program who may not go on to become provenance researchers. And that may, it's just not a staff position that mm -hmm. is available in many museums. But what we're doing is teaching them about why it's so important, why these ethical standards really need to be adhered to. And eventually we're going to expand our offerings so that people can see you know, how there, there may be similar ethical dilemmas regarding Native American items or African items or antiquities, but all of those categories come with their own dilemmas and circumstances that museum professionals need to be aware of. Is it possible that when a museum does this kind of work and they find that something ought to be a return to its rightful owner, that the owner says, thank you, keep it? Yes. And in fact, you know, there are examples of museums proactively reaching out to owners. And, you know, for example, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston has engaged in settlements with families whose ancestors had owned art that was looted by the Nazis. And so they have proactively initiated settlements. There are also some circumstances in which, for example, a museum might hold Native American items and with research and also consultations with tribes, tribal members might determine they cannot properly preserve, conserve uh, the items. And so, for example, the, I know the Denver Art Museum also has made arrangements with tribes that they will conserve items uh, according to the wishes of the tribes mm. and give tribal members access uh, when they would like to perform religious ceremonies. Um, and so in some cases, the museum can be the proper place, but it has to be done with the consent of the community from which the object came. But I have to think that all of that is then added to the narrative of the item and can be an opportunity to educate someone who sees it at that museum. Yes, yeah. yes. And yeah, in that case of Native American items, some of them really should not even be seen by the public. I mean, okay. they are really considered um, ancestors, and it's not 
even appropriate for them to be on display. But you raise an interesting point because what some museums are doing now is they're showing that these objects have histories, they have biographies, and it is fascinating to look at a painting and not just look at its aesthetic beauty, but to also track where it has traveled across continents and oceans and how did it end up at this particular museum in Denver. And uh, what curators and museum staff are finding is that the public really is interested in that story. And it just, it broadens your whole view of art and the meaning of an object. So that is, uh, I think it's, it's a new exciting way for objects to be displayed. You are, as you mentioned, the director of the Center for Art Collection Ethics, and you're headed to Paris at the request of the French government uh, and to do some additional research there. What's your goal with this trip? Yes, I'm thrilled to be going to Paris, uh, fully vaccinated, and so being uh, able to do it safely. And I, I wrote a book about France under the German occupation that was published 10 years ago and was raising some questions about things that the French government could do to do research in its state-run museum collections with works that have been linked to Nazi plunder. 10 years later, uh, the French government is inviting me over to talk about it. And they have made a great deal of progress with this kind of provenance research. It shows that even when the message gets out there that more work needs to be done, it can take quite a while for institutions to respond. So I'm delighted that this really is an affirmation of the research that I've done. And I'm using this opportunity to move forward and to keep telling these stories about how, uh, you know, in the case of my research, how Nazi plunder still affects the art world today. Can you give us an example of an item that the French government became aware of and, you know, having Nazi ties and perhaps repatriated Yes. Yeah, so in recent years, they have done research on collections that were sold under duress. And so that's an area that is very complicated today, is determining whether items that were sold during the Nazi era were sold voluntarily or what degree of duress was involved. And that's a relatively new concept where in previous decisions, the government had denied a claim, but then determined that with the change in norms, that now it would be considered that that sale was forced because of Nazi anti-Semitic laws or through policies uh, enacted by the collaborating governments that that individual was forced to sell that work of art. That's fascinating because on its face, a sale looks like consent. But the point is, if you're trying to save your family because the Nazis have said pony up or else, and we know them to have made that kind of threat, a sale is anything but done with consent. Yes. So, for example, I'm working with a man named Simon Goodman, who wrote a book called The Orpheus Clock. And he has had numerous claims also with the Dutch government. And the Nazi dealers approached his ancestors and requested sales and offered protection and provided invoices that made the sales look legal. But by today's standards, we understand that the ancestors were pressured to sell those works of art that those invoices do not reflect a full voluntary sale. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, Simon Goodman has been successful in receiving numerous items from the Dutch government and also has received some compensation from the French government as well. Oh, thanks for helping us understand that nuance. Are we always talking about paintings and, you know, 
old sculptures. Are we also talking about more everyday items, hairbrushes, mirrors? I don't know. Yes, I've worked with a, a local claimant, Nina McGahee. So her ancestor had owned um, more of an antique shop in Germany. And just in, in recent years, through provenance research uh, carried out by an expert named Micah Hopp and an auction house owner, Katrin Stoll, um, these women have worked together to trace the history of items that were looted from Nina McGahee's family. And these are not high value masterpieces. These are more everyday objects. Mm. But thanks to records that Micah Hupp was able to research, the family was able to get these items back. And speaking with her, you understand the value of getting a, a plaque, um, a simple picture, uh, just a, a decorative item that wouldn't have a lot of value and you would never see on a, a museum display, but holds tremendous value for the family. They're getting a tangible connection to their family and to their past that is very meaningful. I, I want to wade into some uncomfortable territory. World history is one of plundering and conquest in many ways, of, of, you know, one people, one culture going in and dominating another one. How, how far should folks in your field peel back the onion? How many civilizations, generations, epics? Do you know what I mean? You know, it is an interesting question. Um, I'd say that, you know, the institutions need to make a start in areas where it is well known that the provenance research must be done. And so what we see happening is that those areas become topics of focus successively. And so the concern with Native American items um, actually began with a federal law in 1990. Is that NAGPRA? Uh, that's the NAGPRA, NAGPRA no. law. Yes. And then concern for Nazi era art, then garnered more attention later in the 1990s. You know that with the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been more attention recently to African items. Uh, so, and then we have this scandal that has come out with antiquities. So there are a lot of different categories of art that we're talking about, but it is the responsibility of museums to respond when there are known injustices and they need to be able to respond to communities that want this kind of research to be done. And so given the fact that it can affect so many different items, it's just a further argument to invest in provenance research because it does touch so many different communities around the world. And these demands are gonna keep coming and the, the, the requests are gonna keep expanding. So it's just another reason to invest in provenance research. Well, and I think what I hear you saying is that desire and craving on behalf of a particular people, that matters. When someone comes forward, that's especially when you listen uh, yes. and that that can help drive some of these decisions. Otherwise, it might feel totally overwhelming about where to begin. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Safe travels to Paris. And uh, let me know if you have room in your suitcase for me. Thank you. Thank you. I will indeed. Elizabeth Campbell, Associate History Professor at the University of Denver. She also directs DU's Center for Art Collection Ethics. When we come back, a new episode of Colorado Wonders, Why Are There Seabirds in Our Landlocked State? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The pandemic brought on a wave of new workplace automation, from software tools to robots like the ones we imagine from the movie Wall-E. 
So what does it mean for you and the economy? I'm Avery Will. Tune into a special Colorado Matters for my conversation with David Brancaccio, host of the Marketplace Morning Report, recorded for Denver Startup Week, Thursday on CPR News and KRCC. We solve some of the mysteries of living in this state in a segment called Colorado Wonders. And today's question comes from Louise Mahan. When I was driving across the Cherry Creek Dam, I saw what I thought were great big seagulls and discovered on second look that they were pelicans. And I was stunned because I thought pelicans lived on the Gulf Coast. The mystery of the mile-high pelicans, which we'll solve with the help of quite possibly the biggest bird nerd in Colorado, Ted Floyd. I work for the American Birding Association, which is actually based out of Delaware, and I write bird books. And you answer bird questions, including this one from Louise Mahan. Where have you brought us? We are at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. It is immediately outside Denver. And why is this a good place to see pelicans, which I hope we will? What well, has water? And the, uh, the key to finding pelicans is water. Where there is water, there are pelicans. And it doesn't have to be salt water, because, of course, so many of us associate pelicans with the sea. That's right. So in the United States, we have two species of pelicans, and one of them is a marine pelican. That's the brown pelican, which we do not have in Colorado. But then we have a freshwater pelican, the American white pelican, which is the one that is gratifyingly widespread and fairly easy to see in Colorado. The American white pelican. All right. Well, let's go from the parking lot here a little closer to the water's edge. Is this a lake in the distance? Right. So there are actually uh, several lakes here at Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. The one that we are standing by is Lake Ladora. The arsenal is a large area. I found out from my daughter it's the same size as Manhattan. But the water bodies are all sort of concentrated here in the southwestern part of the refuge. And we're here bright and early. There is a mist covering the lake. Yeah, uh, the temperature when I arrived this morning was 37 degrees Fahrenheit, and there is a beautiful mist uh, enveloping the refuge this morning. Well, why don't we walk a bit closer and see if under the curtain of mist we can see some of these American white pelicans, shall we? Sounds like a plan. How many species of birds do you think you've spotted in the arsenal? So I know that the official list for the arsenal is sort of in the high 200s, I want to say maybe around, uh, call 250, a quarter of a thousand species of birds. Are there other birds that we normally associate with the sea or the ocean that also have a, an inland presence? Yeah, so Colorado actually has a very uh, robust list of water birds. We certainly see lots of ducks, which are perhaps not so oceanic, but uh, cormorants we can see out here. Gulls, uh, quote-unquote seagulls. I don't want to guarantee you anything, Ryan, but I practically guarantee you a sighting of a so-called seagull, even though we are quite some distance from the sea out here. Now, are these birds that were born here, or is it possible that any of them were coastal and came to Colorado. Right, so it's a mix. Some of our birds, uh, at this, especially this time of the year in the fall migration, do come from farther afield, but many of our water birds breed right here. A bird called the California gull actually does breed throughout the West, including California. Some also breed in Colorado. That is to say, we have pelicans who were born here and will live most of their lives here. Uh, except for in the winter. So our pelicans are 
fair weather birds, actually. They get the heck out of Dodge, or at least the heck out of Colorado. They stay until the lakes freeze over. Uh, you can see cormorants here in the Denver area until around Thanksgiving, and then they're gone for a few months. They get back in uh, late February. And where do they head? Uh, to coasts, <laughs> to warmer places, to the sea. They winter mostly on the Gulf Coast and the Pacific Coast. And why would they come back here? Uh, what, what would compel them to do so if they've got year-round sun on a coast? Well, I'm sort of tempted to say force of habit. They've always done it. <laughs> but they are adapted for life in these uh, very uh, densely colonial aggregates inland in protected areas, islands on big inland lakes here in Colorado, but also elsewhere throughout the West. So uh, they're sort of snowbirds the way that a lot of humans are. They breed here in Colorado. They go elsewhere uh, during the winter. Now, you talked about there being brown pelicans and these American white pelicans. Besides their obvious color differences, what distinguishes them? So the American white pelican is the behemoth of the Colorado avifauna. It is our largest bird. It's actually quite a bit larger than the brown pelican. The American white pelican is... Uh, it can get up to almost six feet in length if you sort of stretched out a pelican. Most of them are sort of more like a five feet long. Uh, it has an incredible wingspan. The longest pelicans can be up to almost 10 feet in wingspan. Most of them are more sort of like eight or nine. So they're really, really, really big birds, but they're featherweights. The uh, typical pelican is going to weigh only about 15 pounds. So picture a bird that's actually almost as tall as we are, has a wingspan much greater than our arm span, but it only weighs 15 or 16 pounds. They are so light. And the cool thing, there's a snowy egret going by, by the way. Uh, the cool thing about the, the pelican is that because it is so big, but also so light, it's incredibly graceful. So we might see a pelican oh, lumbering you know, across the water or just sort of standing inertly on the shore. And we think that it's just such a almost dull and just big blob of a bird. In flight, they are unbelievably graceful. I have seen albatrosses, I have seen condors, and an American white pelican in flight is every bit as majestic as an albatross or a condor. So it's a very big bird, a very light bird, and one that has incredible ability as a flyer. And speaking of birds, there's a steel one, a southwest flying above us because we're not far from DIA. That's right. We are near Denver International Airport, and, and we're also near uh, downtown Denver, for that matter. If I turn around, I can see the Denver skyline. If I look in the other direction, uh, we see planes taking off and landing at DIA. So that's part of the really cool story here of the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. Okay, maybe at this point you're thinking, stop gabbing already. Where are the darn pelicans? Well, I was wondering the same thing as we stood on the shore of Lake Ledora. Ted Floyd had his binoculars out. Are you seeing pelicans yet? We've not seen any pelicans this morning. It's still sort of a, a misty morning. We've seen a lot of other birds out here. We're seeing snowy egrets and uh, ring-billed gulls. There may have been a California gull out there. I can hear a white-crowned sparrow calling right now. That's a fall migrant. They've just returned from Alaska, and they're going to be uh, with us all winter long. American goldfinch has been going over. We saw actually a rock wren as we were walking along. So lots and lots of birds out here. I have not seen a pelican yet, but hope springs eternal. <laughs> Now, are we at a lake that has fish? Is that key to seeing a pelican? And is that their diet, as I associate 
the oceanic pelicans with the brown pelicans. That's right. So the American white pelican is pretty much strictly a uh, a piscivore, as we say, a a fish eater. Unlike a lot of other sort of maybe more versatile aquatic species, they're going to be pretty much fish eating their entire lives. So if you have a lake with fish, you often will find pelicans in them. And by the way, they're not too fussy. Uh, They will even come to uh, koi ponds (laughs) and uh, artificially stock ponds like that and uh, scarf up the koi as well. Although they certainly will take a, a native or indigenous fish species as well. I have this amazing image of a pelican absconding with koi from someone's private pond. I guess that happens. Yeah, it certainly does. There was a fascinating story from several years ago now, and I'm not going to try to uh, embellish this too much, but up in Boulder County, a um, one of the local ponds up there had become absolutely overrun with some sort of undesirable fish species. I don't remember which one it was. Hang on just a moment. That's a big California gull going over right now. And the question was how to get rid of these fish, and all sorts of exotic solutions were being proposed poisoning the lake, electroshocking the lake, draining the lake, uh, gathering up all the, the fish and somehow removing them, and nothing seemed to work. And then a bunch of pelicans descended upon the lake, and they notified their friends, and within a few days, there were actually a few hundred pelicans there, and they got rid of all the fish on that lake basically in an afternoon. So they can very much uh, dispense with all of the fish in a fairly substantial body of water if the getting's good. And the pelican grapevine, the communication system, pretty good, it sounds like. Right. So pelicans are what we call a social, actually highly social organisms. They exchange information uh, with one another. They sort of notice what other pelicans are doing. You can see a, a lone or solitary pelican sometimes, but by and large, you see pelicans in groups and they share information with each other, either uh, passively for sure and probably actively as well. As you describe it, pelicans are really quite prominent birds in Colorado, but it seems like they have bad PR. People are just mystified by them, more than aware of their rather permanent presence in Colorado. Do you think that's true, Ted? I think that's basically true. I've been out here for quite some time, and I still encounter people, perfectly intelligent, worldly, informed, educated people who... Like Louise! (laughs) Like Louise, who who find out that there are pelicans in Colorado and are sort of shocked by that information. The idea is that the pelican, just as you sort of alluded to earlier, is the sort of bird that should only be found at the seashore. So to me, maybe the, the number one cool fact about pelicans in Colorado is that, well, there are pelicans in Colorado. Not that any have been kind enough to show up yet. But this is why we wait. And waiting, that's a real part of what you do, isn't it, Ted? That's right. Bird watching is very much going out, keeping your your eyes open, but also your mind open to the possibilities that are out there. It's a fairly chilly morning right now. I'm looking across the way. I do see a big white bird. It happens to be a snowy egret, snarfing up fish the way that uh, pelicans would as well. So yeah, waiting is a big part of bird watching. but I also want to say that searching is a bigger and perhaps even bigger part of bird watching. So um, it would not be uncommon at all if we spent the whole day out here for you and me to cover, you know, eight or 10 or even 15 miles on foot. Waiting, yes, but maybe searching even more so. And we'd done the waiting, so it was time for some searching. On to an adjacent lake here at the arsenal called Lower Derby, where we stood on a wooden pier. Ted Floyd raised his binoculars to his eyes, and... I do see 
pelicans. I see a whole bunch of pelicans out here. Very good. They're just beyond this island. There's a flotilla of these massive birds, much bigger than even a, a great blue heron or a, a Canada goose. I can see them. They're actually engaged in this uh, cooperative feeding right now. They're all massed together. There are one, two, three, four, five, six pelicans. And what they're doing is they are creating a super pelican. They are amassing together so tight that they form this. Oh, by the way, here is a, sorry, just a ring-billed gull. <laughs> sorry, folks, but hell, back, back to the pelicans right here. The pelicans are forming this uh, mass here. And what they're doing is creating a um, sort of a shadow that fools the fish below into thinking they're in a condition of relative safety. They can kind of herd the fish up to the surface and then all of a sudden the pelicans will all, there they go right now, plunge down together at the same time and scoop up the fish. So it's a marvelous and ingenious way, here they're, they're doing it right now, uh, an ingenious way of cooperating. So uh, pelicans are masters of cooperation and these six, which may or may not be related to each other, but they found each other's company here, are in the middle of this lake feeding cooperatively gathering fish up together. So the idea here is that they get so big together that a fish wouldn't think there's a single hunting bird above them. Yeah, so that is the conjecture. Uh, there's some experimental support for that. Um, there may be a little bit of sort of a, uh, I don't want to say an urban legend, but maybe a, a pelican legend to that. But yeah, the, the idea is that they create so big a mass that you don't even realize there's a big old bird there. I think they're really, really good at this when they're sort of more like in the uh, at least eight and sort of up to 25 range. When you get more than 25 pelicans, it's a scrum. It's mayhem. It's a total chaos out there, but uh, they all put their heads down together simultaneously there. So feeding all together, doing what they do so well. It's, it's more of a pelican brief, I suppose. No, I, uh, I'll let that one go, but yes, fair enough. <laughs> if that joke left a bad taste in your beak, Ted Floyd may have a palate cleanser, a limerick he was eager to share before we left the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. It's been a while, and I'm going by memory, but I think it goes like this. An amazing bird is the pelican. His bill holds more than his belly can. He holds in his beak enough food for a week, and blamed if I know how the hell he can. Ted Floyd of the American Birding Association. He's based in Colorado and helped answer Louise Mahan's question about the American white pelicans in our state. So what do you wonder about? Let us know, and we'll try to find the answer at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And we will wrap up with music to mark Hispanic Heritage Month, which kicked off in September and runs through the 15th. The national celebration began as Hispanic Heritage Week, with a law signed in 1968 by President Lyndon B. Johnson. In 1988, Congress expanded it to a month-long commemoration. Our colleagues at Indy 1023 are showcasing Latin acts in Colorado, including Kateria, a Denver-based singer who was born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Kateria grew up in a musical household, getting her first guitar at age four and performing by the time she was eight. 
But it was the pandemic lockdown that pushed Kateria out of her comfort zone and into a recording career. She learned music production and worked on her songwriting and went viral with her first single, Mientes. From Denver, by way of Puerto Rico, it's Kateria. She's one of Indie 1023's featured artists for Hispanic Heritage Month. For more Latin music exploration, check out Indie's weekly show Especial, hosted by Bruce Trujillo, Wednesday nights at 10. Thanks for spending time with us today, and thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CBR News and KRCC. 